as I said, we're going to be looking at John's prayer, uh, Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 for the next couple of weeks. And I really do believe that it, if it centers on the church's mission more and more, the more I've read it, the more I've thought about it, the more I've meditated on it, the more I look at the scripture, who we are really does start to pour out of, John's, of John 17. And as Katie read, John 17, starting in verse 15 says, these are Jesus's words. He's praying. He says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. If you have run in Christian circles for any amount of time, you've probably heard the phrase, Christians are in the world, but not of the world. And when it's said in that tone, it can have a lot of different meanings behind it. Like a lot of times, maybe you had a parent who would remind you as you went off to school, in the world, not of it, sweetie. In the world, not of it, sweetie. And you know what that meant? Don't do bad things. Right? That's what it typically means when you hear that phrase, in the world, not of it. It meant watch how you behave. Don't do the bad things, only do the good things. Now, I know for many of us that, that instills this idea of Monty Python and the idea of run away. Like anytime there was something that was not good for them, they would shout to each other, run away, run away. You can hear the coconuts being clicked together. Anytime there was a sign of trouble, it was run away, run away. In effect, run away means retreat. Like to retreat is to run away. It is to avoid the conflict. It is avoiding something that might be difficult. It's refusing to engage because I want to run away. And with most people, when you talk about in the world, not of it, there is a lot of running away that comes to mind. Now, the other side of this is that there are some who've never even considered not of the world. And I get that. I understand. We've tried to say, no, I'm, if you can't beat them, then just join them and try and make Jesus look just like them. Right? Like we've gone from this, rather than being called out of the world, we're instead of being marked as a kingdom people, we try and look like the world, we do like the world, we speak like the world, all in order not to freak people out, right? Like we don't want them to think we're crazy or strange. We want to make Jesus as relevant to the situation as we possibly can by showing them that we're real people. But I've never really considered I'm not of the world anymore. And so, yes, there is this weird, strange tension where we've got some who are retreating. If you can't beat them, leave them. And we have some who are saying, well, you know what? If you can't beat them, join them. Look just like them. Do everything they do so that we don't freak them out in Jesus's name. But John, the same, the same man who penned these words for us in Jesus's prayer, he said these in 1 John chapter 2. He said, do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. 
And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. John's use of the word world is not pointed at the people of the planet. After all, God said he loved the world so much that he gave his son to save the people of the world. So Christ followers, we should in fact care about the things God cares about, and that includes people. But to not be of the world is to not allow its philosophies, its teachings, the ideas, the mob rule concept that so drives the way the world thinks. This is what it means to not be of the world. It is to say, I will not hear those things that are not from God. The things that are the, the, the driving, and in First John's words, he says, it is the physical pleasure, it's the coveting, it's the human arrogance and pride. These are the things you and I are not to love because number one, they are not from the Father. But he also says that they are fading away. So in a sense, we can actually give ourselves to things that will not last. They will not satisfy, nor will they last. And so to have the love of the world in you is to love things that don't satisfy and that will not last. And we can't say we love God and love the world in the same sentence because there are things that are at opposition in the world with God's ways. Without a doubt, there is an acknowledgement that you and I have to understand what not of this world means. But we also downplay the fact that those words, not of this world, really is a launching pad into, sent into the world. Will there be times that you and I have to revisit are not of this worldliness? Yes. But it always reaffirms our sent into the worldness that Jesus called us to. Being not of the world is not the final phrase of Jesus. Not being of the world is the launching pad for our being in the world. Jesus said these words in verse 18. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. In John chapter 16, Jesus is preparing the disciples to live life without him which is obviously a blow to the disciples because a lot of John 16 is about not being afraid and trusting that God's power is still going to be with him. So clearly Jesus could see on their faces, you guys are a little worried now, right? Which for right, rightly so, because you have Jesus, the healer, the teacher, the commander of storms, the caster out of demons, the one who's the provider, all of these things. So to leave the future work of people being freed from sin and the penalty of sin and the power of sin up to these men, to take that message out. You could see why they'd be like, Jesus, why we, got to, why we got to stop while the getting is good? Like, why don't we ride this train out as long as we possibly can? Like, let's just do this together, you and me and us and, and all the things. Like, you're leaving this kingdom message up to us? I don't remember my wife's grocery list, but you're telling me I need to go and tell the people of the world the kingdom messages that you have revealed to us? That's intimidating. It's scary. It's a lot of responsibility. But Jesus said that I have overcome this world. And then he launches in to John chapter 17. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. 
He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from the world. They were always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you. For I have passed on to them the message you gave to me. They accepted it and know that I came from you. And they believe you sent me. We often refer to Matthew 6 as the Lord's Prayer. You know, the Our Father who art in heaven. But the truth is the disciples asked Jesus how to pray. So Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Jesus doesn't need forgiveness of sin. We do. Jesus doesn't need to be provided for. He is the provider. So in a sense, it is the disciples' prayer. When Jesus says, this is how you should pray, he did instruct them, but it's for you and me to pray. John 17 is often referred to as the real Lord's Prayer because it is actually Jesus praying. It is him spending time with his Father, and through his prayer life, we begin to understand what is important to Jesus. Whenever you sit with someone and you hear their prayers, you hear what's going on on the inside. When you hear someone pray, when you sit with someone and you know them well enough to actually be in a small community praying together, you learn a lot about somebody by their prayers. You find out what's, what's in value to them, what's important to them, what they have coming up, what might be difficult that they're walking through. Through their prayers, you learn so much. It's, a, it's like a, a curtain pulled back where there's an authenticity there. There's a realness there because you're hearing their hearts crying out to God. And so the disciples get to hear. Now, I don't know about you, but my children have a hearing problem when it comes to me asking them to do things. But I can be standing in the corner of my house intentionally taking candy wrapper and doing it very quietly, but all four of them show up. They're like, what's going on? What did I hear? Did I hear? I think I heard, do you have candy? Like, I was upstairs with my door closed and my music blasting, but I thought I heard candy. You have some, don't you? You're holding out on us, aren't you? You know, I mean, it's amazing to me, but, but when, you, when you hear those things and your response is like, ooh, I wanna lean in, I'm gonna find out. My children do that very thing. I believe that is what Jesus is doing right here with the disciples. He is praying so they can hear him. He's doing this on purpose. He is not going, oh, I'm accidentally, oh, well, you know what, I'm, I'm short on time. I'm about to die on the cross. I should probably pray something. So probably get a quick prayer out before they come and take me and nail me to the cross. No, he does this on purpose. He's actually going, I want the disciples to hear this. I'm setting them up to hear what's really, really, really important in this very hour. And so he does this. Jesus is revealing his great concern as the son of God, that God be glorified. Who God is, what he's like, what he has said, all that saving grace really is, God's salvation plan. Jesus wants the world to see God, his power, his plans, and his kingdom fully revealed. And it's about to go down through the cross. Jesus' prayer begins with an earthly uh, a shift in what it actually means to pray. 
Jesus says, the hour has come. Glorify me so I can give glory to you. Now, the hour has come is is important because up to this point, it's always been the hour has not come. And what that connects to is when the people who saw Jesus being really good and doing all these cool things, they would try and grab him and make him powerful based on their terms. And Jesus's words would be, it's not time. I'm not going to be glorified through your ways. I'm not going to be lifted up to rule in the way you think I should. It is not my hour. But now Jesus says it's time. It's the hour. What wasn't the hour is now the hour. And it's going to be shocking to the disciples at how this hour is to come about. Human strength, human positions of power, Jesus was not about. But he was about the Father's timing. And it was arriving through his death on the cross. How Jesus is going to be glorified and turn God glorifying him is through his death on the cross. Jesus is glorified because God gave all things to him. So the father's going, I want my son to be glorified. Everything is under his command. And Jesus is going, you know what? I'm going to glorify my father because I'm not going to lose any of the ones that he's given to me. So in turn, here's me glorifying you. Here's you glorifying me. And it's this beautiful relationship where they're pointing to each other. And Jesus is saying, I want you to do what you've got for me. Like he's not saying, hey, change the plan because I know it's going to involve my suffering. He's saying, God, I am agreeing with what you have planned since the foundation of the world. All of it is pointing to the cross. Jesus's prayer in him saying, Father, do what you've planned out. I'm conforming my will to yours. I say this is an earth shattering shift in prayer because most of our prayers, if we're honest, are centered on us getting God to conform to our will, right? Like, it's not a terrible thing to go, God, I'd really, I'd really love for you to change this scenario. I'd really love for you to answer this prayer this way. It's not a terrible thing to say, God, you know the desires of my heart. You know the change that needs to come. My job is where it is. My relationships are where it is. My finances are where they're at. It's not a bad thing to go, God, please change this. But when all we are concerned about is conforming God to our plans, we actually miss the real meaning of prayer. What we're seeing when we see it in the garden, Jesus is like, God, if there's any other way, like if there's any other way that you can save the world, I get it, if there is any other way, but not my will be done, your will be done. There is a shift in what prayer looks like in Jesus's words. It is saying, God, please conform me to your will and to your plans. I don't understand everything for you and I. We are going to go, God, I don't know how suffering does it, but if it's going to change me into the image of Christ, which is your perfect will and your will for us is to conform yourself in us. Okay, give me the strength to walk through it. God, you know my desire is that you would change this situation or this scenario or or this pain or this difficulty, but God, you can shape me through it. So I'm trying to conform myself to your will, not vice versa. The same thing happens in the garden. Jesus prays that prayer, my will, not my will, but yours be done. This is where you and I have to come face to face with whose glory do we really want? Our prayers will determine whose glory we really want. 
Do we want God to glorify us by giving us everything we've ever asked for? Or is our desire, God, that you would get the glory through everything that is gonna go on in my life, and I don't know how that works, but you do. And what Jesus has revealed about the Father is enough for me to go, okay then, God, your perfect will be done in my life. In the Old Testament, on the top of the mountain, where the Ten Commandments are given, Moses comes to a point where he just says, God, show me your glory. Like, show me who you are. Like, I need to see this, because if I don't see this, I'm not sure I can be the guy. And so God says, you know what? Okay, we'll do this thing where you can't see my face. I'm gonna put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm gonna walk by you. You can see my backside. That's how it's gonna work. And so when God walks by Moses, Moses has said, let me see it. Let me see your glory. This is what God chooses to reveal. In Exodus chapter 34, he says, the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Verse 8 says, Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshiped. And he said, O Lord, if it is true that I have found favor with you, then please travel with us. Yes, this is a stubborn and rebellious people, but please forgive our iniquity and sins. Claim us as your own special possession. Show us your glory. And the Lord chooses to do it. And he reveals compassion. He reveals mercy. He reveals slow to anger. He reveals unfailing love. He reveals faithfulness and he reveals forgiving. When we see this, we are changed. When God chooses to reveal who he is to his people, you cannot remain the same. Moses put his worship in the right place. When he saw God, what did he do? He didn't walk out going, oh, great, everything's super. I'm gonna be great. I'm super powerful. I'm super smart. No, he fell down and put his worship in the right place. He didn't go, God, you just revealed how awesome you are. Now I know that I can overcome everything by my own strength. No, he fell down and he worshiped because what God chose to reveal was more than Moses could handle. And then he says, if you are who you are, I don't wanna go anywhere without you. Travel with us. Like this is what, when you understand the weight of God's glory, when you understand that glory is weightiness, the heaviness of his name, you are changed by it. There's an understanding. There is a, I don't want to move without him. He didn't want to be held to anything else. Moses was saying, this is what is most glorious. God, you choosing to reveal yourself to me in this way please go with me. That is his prayer. Most of the time, you and I are so busy trying to get God to reveal our glory to the world, right? We're like, God, just show them that I'm right. Like by this Facebook post, I'm going to let the world know that I'm right. 
Like, that's what we want. We're like, give God, show my glory to the world by proving that I am right. Like, this is what we love. More, more often than not, we will not ask to see God's glory because we don't want anything to compete with ours. We are glory-hungry monsters. And we want people to know how great we are. And the only remedy for that is understanding how great God is. There is no other remedy. And until we are convinced of the glory of God, there is nothing that I can say or can be said to you that will cause you to want to go and share that glory with the rest of the world. I remember it was the very first student ministry position I had, and we had been traveling for a while, sharing with other students, like, go and be a campus missionary and live on your campus. And we were dealing with a lot of student leaders, and it was the very first time I was actually in student ministry, looking at a room full of people going, hey, you got to be a part of this message going out. And I remember looking in, them, looking in their eyes and going, they have absolutely nothing to share. And it's not that they didn't want to but it's because they thought other things were more glorious. They were more impacted by the weight of the popularity of that person sitting next to them. Or they were more impacted by the weight or the glory of their name and the risk that it might be involved by them sharing of the glory of God. They were more impacted by their own glory than they were this glorious God who's revealed himself as faithful, compassionate, loving, slow to anger, merciful, forgiving of sin. That was not most glorious to them. Their name, our name, remains glorious to us. And the only remedy against us being the glory-hungry monsters that we are is to see something that is truly glorious, and that is the person of God. Just as God chose to reveal who he was to Moses, Jesus again fully reveals who God is to us. John 17, 6, I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. So in the very same way God reveals who he is to Moses, Jesus does the same thing on the cross. He reveals the forgiveness of God. As you and I have rebelled and chosen to be glory hungry rather than be glory pointers to the one who is most glorious, he has chosen to offer and extend forgiveness of sin through Christ's death on the cross. He reveals God's compassion towards us, knowing that we are in a dire state and we cannot rescue ourselves. God did not look on us with pity. He looked on us with compassion. That means he saw something that was broken and was moved to action on our behalf. The mercy of God, meaning we will not be thrown or con condemned or crushed under the weight of glory of God, but we were actually removed from underneath the wrath and the penalty of sin and death and brought into right relationship with God. This is what he has done, and it is revealed on the cross through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It shows us how patient he is with us, that you and I, the first time we sinned, we did not die, but every time more and more and more as we dove head in, headlong into sin. At just the right time, God sent Jesus to be a sacrifice to take away our sins. How slow to anger he is. He allowed for us to see his unfailing love and faithfulness as Jesus was the promise from the very beginning. 
Every word that God spoke was promised that the Messiah would come and provide a rescue for sin, for sinners like you and me who have been glory hungry. The same God that revealed himself to Moses is the same God that revealed himself on the cross. There's not two different gods. Old Testament God and New Testament God are not at odds with each other. It's the same God. And he reveals himself in the same way, compassionate, forgiving, merciful, patient, unfailing love and faithfulness. Not only did God reveal himself, he revealed his ways through Jesus. John 17, verse three, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. God's ways are not like ours. And one of the things we learn by watching the life of Jesus is that very thing. His ways are not like ours. Where our ways are really built on collecting stuff and things and our efforts and human pride, what Jesus points to is that that is not what defines life, relationship with God. Jesus didn't say they know about you being eternal life. I believe the biggest problem in most churches in America is we know a lot about God. We know a lot about Jesus, but we got a lot of people that don't know him. Because when you know him, being sent into the world only makes sense. We have so much information about God and about Jesus. And so many of you who are ready to say, well, I know that about him. I didn't ask you if you knew that about him. Do you know him? One of the things that the church stands on and declares through whether it be preaching the word of God or proclaiming scripture is not that we are just providing information about Jesus, but we really believe that Jesus presents himself to the body of Christ when his word is proclaimed. It's not just about an informational exchange. Now I have that thought. I will move on. No, it is. God, you let us see your glory, please. Please go with us. If you don't go with us, we're done for. Please go with us. Please mark us as your own special possession. I do not want to go anywhere without you. Verse 8 of John 17 says these words, For I have passed on to them the message you gave me, eternal life. They accepted it and know that I came from you and they believe you sent me. These words are a game changer in that he didn't, he didn't say, hey, they cleaned themselves up. They got it all right. They all went to good Jewish boy school and know all the ways and definitions that the Messiah would come. They watched my life. They listened to my words. They accepted them and they believed that you sent me. How freeing and how different is that message than every other message in the world? That eternal life is possible and provided not by my collection of things, my resume, not anything else, but other than to look 
and to consider. I love that God would say, hey, come let us reason together. When you and I get to sit down and go, all right, if this is where eternal life is found, I better have an understanding. I wanna, I wanna know, I wanna look at, I wanna test, I wanna see, I wanna, be, I wanna behold, I wanna ask the questions. And when I come to the point where I'm like, Jesus is who he says he is, eternal life. Relationship. Not stuff and things. Not your works, not your attitude, not your behavior, not your good list of accomplishments. Nothing you can hold up before the cross is going to be greater than the work of Jesus. So put your resumes down, shred them in fact, so you're not tempted to go back to them and allow the work of Jesus to define your life. From the moment you believe that to be true, you have set out on the journey for what real life looks like. And we do this together. In the sixth century, there was an Irish missionary named St. Columba, and he was sent to uh, evangelize Northern Scotland. This provided a, a, a problem because there was a group of people known as the Picts, P-I-C-T-S, which actually means painted people. And so they were a fearful group that people were afraid of. The le- I don't know if the legend had spun out of control, but they were known for either being covered in tattoos or painted with war paint. So either way, it was an intimidating group of people to have to go and evangelize to, okay? So this man took 12 other men in a boat uh, to the island of Iona, and the first thing they did when they arrived at this island was they burnt their boat to the ground destroyed their boat. And the reason they did this was because they did not trust themselves to stay once they saw what they might have to encounter. Because they chose to carry the weightiness of God's glory with them into the world, Scotland, for centuries, was a place where Christian gospel messages came out of. Why, why take a risk? The glory of God. Why risk death going to these places? Not of the world. Why burn your ship to the ground? Not of the world. Why risk your life? Because I'm not of the world. Why go to a people where the rest of the world is like, you do not want to go there? Not of the world. Why look everyone else in the face and go, I gotta go? Not of the world. Do we believe this about this message? Not of the world begins with seeing God as most glorious. Jesus' prayer, glorify your son so that he can give glory back to you. What causes someone to go into the world begins, is sustained by, and ends with recognizing that God has called us out of the world. You have an opportunity this morning to consider your influence in this world. Influence just simply means to have an important effect on someone or something. But the real storyteller, the story is before you and I can be an influencer in this world is our lives must first be influenced by his. If we're still convinced that we're more glorious than God, it only makes sense that that's the story we'll tell. We'll tell our story. 
But when we have seen Jesus revealing the glory of God through the cross, we're marked by it. There are adjustments in the way we live because what happens is when his glory, boom, comes down, it's heavier than anything else. And when something heavy falls into place, it displaces other things, right? Like you watch it, you do the experiments with water, you do the things, you drop stuff in and stuff gets moved out because it takes up different spaces. When the glory of God, boom, falls and we see him, it shifts things in our lives. It moves things out. Things become less important to us that we once thought were the most important. This is what Jesus does on the cross. This place that God chooses to come and take up space in our lives, we no longer have to wonder, will he go with us? But the truth is when Jesus said, I'm leaving so that the advocate, the Holy Spirit will come and dwell in you. No longer would people have to travel far distances to come find Jesus. The church was actually walking with the presence of God to these people. So in effect, you're seeing just how good it was for Jesus to go away. Because the nearness of God would become more real through his people being sent into the world. We go with his presence in us. This morning as we close in worship, would you be willing, as we go to this table this morning, that we go to every week, would you be daring enough to pray the prayer, God, show me your glory? And here's the problem with that. When he chooses to, guess whose glory becomes less and less? Mine. Yours. I know we want to tell a story. And more often than not, the story we want to tell is ours. But when we see him and he chooses to reveal who he is, we cannot help but be changed. R. Keith Parks, a missionary and a worldview writer, um, said these words. He says, missions is God's redemption proclaimed through persons to all people. This is why I don't necessarily enjoy the, the phrase, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. There is no gospel being preached if there are no words used. Like people will look at your good behavior and be like, thanks, your good behavior is awesome. But unless we declare to them who is responsible for the greatest work, the gospel really isn't proclaimed. So preach the gospel, yes, use words. You have to for the gospel to be preached, okay? But he says these words, proclaim through persons to all people. The source is God. Its embodiment is Jesus Christ. Its story is the Bible. Its purpose is salvation. Its scope is humanity. Its declaration is the believer's mandate, a command, not an option. But for people who have seen the glory of God, you just carry that weight with you wherever you go. You walk in it. You talk about it. Its fulfillment is the church's task. Its application is the world's hope and its culmination is God's glory. Like I don't tell someone about Jesus because I just want them to stop doing bad things. I want them to fall down in worship. I want them to know what their hearts were made for, that they were meant to bow their lives and their heart and their desires, all the things that aren't satisfying, all the things that aren't lasting. I want them to trade that for real life. 
That's the mandate. That's why I want them to know this Jesus. It's not because I think, well, you know what? You'll stop doing that bad thing if you give your life to Jesus. I don't know that they will, but I know that his heart, his space will take, his life will take up space in their life and maybe one day they'll overcome that. Maybe they won't, but now they have a new hope that eternal life has been gifted through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. So when you go to the tables this morning, would you dare to pray, God, please show me your glory through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. As I take this bread and I dip it in this juice, the bread that is your body, the juice that is your blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of sin, let me see it. And when you do, you'll say, God, I don't wanna go anywhere without you. I get it. You're weighty. That's the weight I was made to walk with, like that glory in me by the power of your presence. Not of the world, to be sent into the world. Father, I ask that as we taste this meal this morning, that we'd be reminded of your compassion, your mercy, your slow to anger, your unfailing love, your faithfulness, and your forgiveness. For without it, we have nothing. Would you please mark us as your own special possession? Just as Moses prayed, show us your glory. It's in your name we pray.